0: Beginning of the 19th century, scientific information was transmitted by word of mouth, handwritten letters, classroom instruction, public lectures, books, and scientific journals. In the two centuries since, communication of all kinds of information has been carried out by radio, telephone, motion pictures, television, tapes, discs, email, websites, blogs, social networks, a vast array of specialized journals, e-books, and even skywriting and body art. Think of Tim Tebow's Bible verses on his black. Opportunities for the transmission of information are unprecedented and seemingly boundless. The opportunities for the transmission of false information are also unprecedented and seemingly boundless. Here are just two examples. During the Republican primary uh, campaign, I heard Rick Santorum refer at least twice on television to the global warming hoax. Thanks to television, millions of people are now exposed to this kind of politically motivated condemnation of a segment of the scientific community and to mockery of scientific conclusions that are regarded as established by climate scientists. It doesn't have to be this way. The Christian Reformed Church recently appointed a first-rate, professionally competent committee to make recommendations to the denomination about global warming so that it might respond appropriately. A few months ago, the committee released an outstanding report strongly supportive of the scientific findings of the climate science community. I encourage all of you to read that report. But is there any possibility for a nationally televised discussion in defense of the science of climate change within a Christian context? The second example. Lately, I've become skeptical of Christian projects that contain the word truth, such as my talk. LAUGHTER In many other respects, an excellent book, Nancy Percy's Total presented a skewed picture of the theory of evolution. The Truth Project, a video series produced by Focus on the Family, has commendable aspects. But the two videos on science, despite impressive graphics, were misleading. We were informed that the fossil record provides no evidence for evolution and given no discussion of uh, genomics, biogeography, or developmental biology. Evolutionary theory was dismissed as a big lie. The only proponents of evolution mentioned were thoroughgoing atheists. It doesn't have to be this way. Is there a possibility for a high-quality video series geared to both Christian and uh, general audiences and that advances both sound theology and sound evolutionary theory? I look forward with interest to viewing uh, From the Dust this evening. How can we move forward in the attempt to exchange lies for truth or more gently to exchange erroneous, discredited science for accurate, credible science. Let us concede that we will never eradicate pseudoscience and incorrect information any more than we will eradicate poverty. Like the poor, distorters of science will always be with us. The opportunities for mistrust, misunderstanding, and mischief are simply far too great, especially in the United States where we are blessed with freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion. Our country is the land of opportunity opportunity to produce and accept shoddy scholarship uncritically, and to believe and advocate outrageous, deluded, blatantly false ideas. Many people who reject important components of mainstream science have large sums of money, enabling them to disseminate ludicrous beliefs by way of the mass media. But we don't want to live in a totalitarian state that compels all of us to believe and profess the truth upon pain of imprisonment or death. We do not want speech police, thought police, or scientific police. Because we still enjoy these freedoms, those who know the difference between mainstream science and heretical or cult science need to take advantage of those freedoms to inform others about the way science works and what it has discovered about God's world. We may not eradicate pseudoscience, but we may be able to blunt its impact. I it remind us of the value of one simple action that can be pursued by all of us, and that many of us already engage in. We can all correct false or misrepresented science by sending emails to editors or uh, people who espouse false science. Although it is a little step that takes little time and likely has a small effect, silence guarantees that absolutely no progress will be made. I've fallen short in this regard, but occasionally I practice what I'm now preaching. After hearing Rick Santorum's second hoax comment, I emailed his campaign committee politely objected to the use of his, his use of the term and explained why his alleged hoax was virtually impossible. I would like to report that after calling me on the phone and personally apologizing, Santorum recanted his error on national television, conceded that global warming was occurring, and invited me to serve as a science advisor. <laughs> Foreseeing his doomed presidential candidacy, however, I wisely declined the invitation. <laughs> I would like to report all that but doing so would be a big lie. Uh, but who knows? Maybe someone on his campaign committee took note of my email and had second thoughts. In response to the gross representation, uh, misrepresentation of Evolution in the Truth project, I wrote a three page letter to Del Tackett, the host of the series, pointing out many of the flaws in the presentation and correcting some of the blatant errors. I never heard a word from Tackett. Did he ever see it? Who knows? At least I tried. For the rest of my talk, I want to explore the exchange of scientific falsehood for scientific truth from a different angle. Although our conference emphasizes the role of media in reaching the public, I wish to focus on a critical target audience that exerts, exerts great influence over the Christian public. I'd like suggestions on some way to do that. I'm persuaded that if the church is ever to get past its troubling fascination with pseudoscience, Christians in the sciences must reach pastors with scientific reality. It is primarily through pastors that we will reach the Christian grassroots. A concerted collective effort must be made to educate pastors. While reflecting during the spring on what such an effort might look like, I fell into a deep sleep. A most remarkable dream engulfed me. I'm asking you now to leave technology and rigorous logic behind for just a few minutes to accompany me on a journey into the world of fantasy as I recount the gist of my dream. As my dream gradually came into focus, I beheld a vast array of enthusiastic, spirit-filled teenage students, evidently from the distant future, sometime in the next century, perhaps. Each student sensing the call of God to serve in the pastorate was being mentored by his or her own pastor. I wandered about, eavesdropping on various conversations. Filled with the wisdom and insight of spirit-filled maturity, these pastors were encouraging the young people to prepare themselves for seminary education. And their subsequent pastoral ministry by availing themselves of a solid liberal arts education. Drink deeply from the wells of history and philosophy, they counsel. Delve into the workings of the human mind and psychology. Explore social patterns and structures in sociology courses. Learn Greek if you have the opportunity before you get to seminary. As future pastors, you must communicate the gospel effectively, so you must learn to speak and write your own language clearly. Simply, grammatically, and with correct spelling, don't be afraid of a little literary elegance. Ours is a beautiful, powerful language, obviously for English people here, when properly employed. Above all, you must deepen your walk with the Lord by committing yourself to regular prayer and Bible study. I was pleased, but not greatly surprised, by the advice that was offered. But then the dream took a bizarre twist, for next I heard these pastors saying something along the following lines. We also encourage you to do something that prospective pastors back in the 20th and early 21st centuries were not accustomed to doing. Devote yourselves to a significant amount of scientific study while you're in college. Take geology, astronomy, and biology courses so that you will learn about the major structures, processes, and history of the cosmos, the earth, and of life. Learn about the physical world you live in. It is, after all, God's creation. Follow the example of the great 19th century theologian Charles Hodge, who took the keenest interest in all scientific discoveries, according to his grandson, Princeton paleontologist William Berryman Scott. Being greeted with quizzical expressions on the faces of the youthful students as well as questions regarding the relevance of science to preparation for the ministry, the pastors explained that during their own seminary training and ongoing study of Scripture while in the pastorate, they were struck by how pervasive the theme of divine creation was throughout the Bible. It dawned on them that preaching about creation had been virtually neglected during their youth, and they recognized the incongruity of paying lip service to God's creation while knowing virtually nothing about his handiwork. They lamented their own ignorance of science generally, and especially their lack of knowledge about their God-given home, the earth. Having avoided college science like a room full of rattlesnakes, they now regretted not having learned some geology and astronomy in college, and wished that they were better equipped to distinguish genuine scientific knowledge from the pseudo-geology that had been advocated by some vocal, well-meaning Christians. They also had found out to their dismay that much of what they thought they knew was false. In light of their own inadequate experience with science, they were concerned lest the next generation of pastors repeat their mistake. The advising pastors went on to remind the students that the Psalms repeatedly urged the people of God to praise him for his wonderful works. It is proper that we should focus on God's glorious, gracious work of redemption of lost sinners, they insisted, but there must be a place and time to praise God for the wondrous inner workings of the cell or the growth of an embryo or the social structure of a family of elephants or the spreading of the seafloor or the expansion of the cosmos. Why should not some of those works be celebrated in a worship service, they asked. Many of the pastors explained that they were beginning to do just that. But they warned, how can a pastor praise God and worship for his creation if he or she lacks any awareness of the workings of creation? The pastors cautioned the teenagers that, according to some Christian leaders, preachers would be wasting time in the pulpit on science because the sole focus should be on the gospel, Jesus, salvation, and evangelism. I was amazed that these dream world pastors thought that restricting oneself in that way would result in failure to preach the whole counsel of God and the whole of Scripture. Such ministry, they were claiming, would impart to congregations a partial, unbalanced, skewed grasp of the totality of Christian faith. Besides, they said, centuries ago, ministers of the gospel seemed to think that it was important to reflect on science from time to time in their sermons and writings, and they were not afraid to do so where appropriate. I was delighted to hear one of the Reformed pastors mention that John Calvin routinely touched on scientific aspects of nature in his sermons on Job, and at many points in his commentaries where it was pertinent. Several other giants of church history incorporated the science of their day into their discourses on the doctrine of creation. An Episcopalian priest mentioned Ambrose in his homilies on the Hexameron, and St. Bonaventure in his Breviloquium. Over in one obscure corner, I believe I heard an Orthodox priest refer to John of Damascus and his work on the Orthodox faith. In the eyes of my dream world pastors, if these ancient Christian luminaries did not hesitate to preach about science and write about science. There was little reason why contemporary pastors should not integrate a little scientific insight into some of their sermons. Several of the mentors urged the students to read an old classic from the early 21st century that had just been reprinted, Proclaim the Wonder, Engaging Science on Sunday, by Scott Jose. They had found his book a useful resource for how a young preacher might develop sermons that include science. Rarely at a loss for words, like virtually all pastors, these pastors had still more to say to the fresh-faced high school students. They stressed how important it was to understand that they would be ministering to people who lived in a culture that was steeped in and saturated with science, technology, and mathematics compared to the rather primitive early 21st century science. They pushed the young people to come to grips with the fact that the sciences constantly present new challenges to the Christian understanding of Scripture, theology, and the world, and the fact that a pastor must be equipped to address at least some of these challenges, especially for the benefit of inquisitive students. One day, they counseled, you will need to explain carefully the nuances of the biblical doctrine of creation, to lead your congregation in appreciating the wonderful creative works of God, and to provide answers to young people who have questions posed by the sciences, or at least help them locate the answers. To minister effectively, you cannot rest content with superficial or false information about science that you may have picked up from a website constructed by one of the purveyors of pseudoscientific misinformation or from political talk show host. Because you will undermine Christian faith every time you promote bogus science or any kind of falsehood, you must learn to recognize and shun false science and you must have a basic knowledge of how the scientific community gains knowledge as well as the content of at least some of the sciences, especially knowledge about the planet God has given you, and your congregation is humanity's home. Do not fear the sciences. Let them open a bigger world to you. By the way, the minister said, you will be interested to know that virtually all theological seminaries these days, uh, concurring in the points that we have been making, require entering students to pass at least three reputable courses in the natural sciences. In particular, seminaries want all their students to be exposed to some of the legitimate evidence for the antiquity of the cosmos, the antiquity of the earth, and biological evolution. Citing an alarming statistic from a century-old issue of Christianity Today, printed way back in 2012, that only 4% of evangelical pastors were open to biological evolution, the advisors noted that evangelical leaders of that era became persuaded that something must be done to improve their own scientific literacy, and set about to raise the educational standards of prospective ministers. I watched in amazement as these pastors provided such remarkable and radical counsel. I must be dreaming, I said to myself. But I was even more astounded when I heard that many ecclesiastical bodies responsible for the spiritual oversight of these young prospective pastors were increasingly confirming and supporting the advice of the established pastors. Following its own strange inner logic, my dream morphed into a different scene. The pastors faded from view, and now I saw the young would-be pastors in their early 20s and finishing their college careers. Almost all of them had completed three or more science courses. They were excited by the amazing vistas of knowledge that had opened up to them during their undergraduate years. They had grown in their walk with God and Christ through worship, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, and service. They were confirmed in their call to ministry, Many of them had learned Greek. They learned to speak in public and to write well. They had been exposed to a wide range of knowledge in the humanities and social sciences, but they'd also gained appreciation for the workings of the scientific enterprise and an understanding of why scientists maintain that the cosmos and Earth are billions of years old, thanks in part to the geology field trips they had taken in college. They appreciated the force of the spectrum of evidence for biological evolution. Now I watch these freshly-minted graduates enrolled in theological seminary. They were grateful to have passed the natural science courses that were required for admission into seminary. In their new academic environment, the students took the usual courses in Hebrew and Greek, biblical studies, systematic theology, apologetics, church history, and pastoral work. But these seminaries were not like those of the 20th century, which downplayed or entirely ignored the need for some science education. These newer seminaries recall the days of the 19th century when Princeton, Oberlin and Ursinus Colleges, and Columbia and Princeton Theological Seminaries hired professors such as James Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson's uncle, Charles Woodruff Shields, Francis Landy Patton, and George Frederick Wright, whose specialty was the harmony of science and religion. Following the lead of these old-timers, my fantasy land theological seminaries, We're requiring every student in their Master of Divinity programs to take a full-year course of science and Christianity. In this course, students not only reviewed much of what they had learned in college about science, but were also introduced to fundamental findings in such fields as paleoanthropology, ecology, brain science, genetics, and genomics. What impressed me most about the courses was the careful integration of scientific knowledge with biblical studies, theology, and apologetics. While I pondered who could possibly teach such courses, an eminent theologian approached me to explain that his seminary had recruited a cadre of Christian scientists from a wide range of disciplines to serve as adjunct instructors. Upon asking how they found the required experts, I was informed that the various seminaries collaborated with an organization known as the American Affiliation of Christians in Science, a descendant of the American Scientific Affiliation of a century earlier. I was shown a copy of the hefty membership directory of the AACS, which now boasted nearly 50,000 members. (laughs) The The directory included not only contact information and field of expertise of the members, but also their denominational membership or preference. Apparently, the AACS saw the benefit of including denominational preference so that its members could more readily collaborate on joint projects to assist and educate their own denominations. Lutheran seminaries, for example, were easily able to identify Lutheran evolutionary biologists as potential instructors for their courses. I was also delighted that when AACS members were approached by various seminaries to participate in course development and instruction of these science Christianity courses, they almost uniformly expressed such gratitude and pleasure at being asked to take part that they volunteered their services gratis for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Remember, this is a fantasy. (laughs) After the seminarians had completed one of these science-Christianity courses, they were most grateful, for they grew in their understanding of the geological evidence for an ancient earth, the astronomical evidence for an ancient cosmos, the molecular, biological, paleontological, and biogeographical evidence for the theory of evolution, and the paleontological and genetic evidence for hominid evolution. Moreover, the seminarians appreciated learning of various ways in which scientific endeavor might be integrated with a high view of Scripture, Each seminarian gained new confidence that they would be equipped to provide sound counsel to their congregations when questions arose about the implications of science for Christian faith. Realizing, too, that the day would soon be upon them when they would need a generous supply of illustrations to enliven their sermons, the eager seminarians were thrilled to discover some possibilities from the realm of science. In their homiletics classes, seminary students no longer felt intimidated by the requirement to preach a practice sermon on creation. In my dream, I was presently surprised to see that seminary faculty members who participated in the courses on science and Christianity did not regard the scientists with suspicion out of fear that they would undermine their own endeavors, but rather considered the scientists as co-laborers in the kingdom of God and welcomed their collaboration, knowledge, and insight. Nor did the seminary instructors feel intimidated by working with the scientists. Some of the theologians and biblical scholars explained that for years, small groups of geologists from the affiliation of Christian geologists and small groups of biologists, from the affiliation of Christian biologists two divisions of the AACS, routinely arranged for two-hour discussions with seminary faculty members to take place on their seminary campuses. The apologists, systematic theologians, and Old Testament scholars greatly appreciated these opportunities for cross-fertilization. These theologian-scientist discussions generally occurred when professional meetings of geologists or biologists were scheduled in the same cities as those in which the seminaries were located. In some cases, they reported joint discussions with astronomers or anthropologists. My dream wandered farther into the future. I saw that the seminarians were now facing graduation, how much they had matured since their teens. These seminary grads were ready to enter their first pastorates. Their trust in the Lord's direction was mixed with little fear and trepidation. They were excited, but just a bit intimidated to be interviewed for potential pulpit positions. I listened in on some interviews. In addition to the predictable questions about the candidate's spiritual journey, strengths and weaknesses, devotional life, and theology, most of the pastoral interviewers, uh, interviewees were also asked about their intellectual curiosity. The pulpit search committee members wanted to know if the candidates to whom they might extend calls were curious about God's world and about human culture. They wanted to know, is this candidate engaged with the wider world? In one interview, I heard a candidate being asked about the kinds of books she read. In another interview, I heard a search committee member ask the following question. If you had the opportunity to get an advanced degree in some field other than the pastorate, what would that be? Most of the candidates expressed enthusiasm for psychology and philosophy, but I was delighted to hear several of them comment they were intrigued by fields such as paleontology, astronomy, anthropology, molecular biology, and wished they knew more about those fields. Many candidates told their search committees that they were big fans of the Eukaryote Planet Channel, or that they regularly watched Supernova on PBS (laughs) and would not miss them for anything because they were eager to understand God's creation better. Most candidates also said that they availed themselves of the incredible wealth of resources on the ever-expanding websites of the Ministry Theorem and BioLogos now entering their second century. Some confessed to reading selected articles in Scientific American, now in its third century. Virtually all candidates mentioned that they regularly took long walks in the woods, along the seashore, or in a park, not only for the physical and psychological benefits, but also because they experienced a greater connectedness to their creator, when they simply read an article or a book or watched a video about his created work. Our novice pastors were now occupying the pulpits of their first congregations. They were all confronted with many challenges. They made mistakes along the way, but they were learning and maturing in the process, aided by the patience and wisdom of their church leaders and congregations. The church leaders in most of the congregations not only recognized that it was important for their young pastors to take advantage of opportunities for continuing education, but we were also willing to grant them financial support for participation in workshops and short courses on topics that would be of great benefit to their ministry. I realized that Christian colleges, theological seminaries, and even denominational bodies, such as associations, conferences, presbyteries, synods, and general assemblies were regularly sponsoring seminars, workshops, and short courses for the benefit of pastors in need of further education and intellectual stimulation, as they had for decades. Deeply appreciative of the support of their congregations, the fledgling pastors eagerly took advantage of such opportunities by signing up for workshops lasting anywhere from an afternoon to a full week on worship, hymnody, liturgy, church planning, time management, counseling, communication, sermon preparation, conflict resolution, church history, theology, precisely the topics that most pastors need during their formative years. But something was different from what characterized my world. Thanks to the pioneering efforts of Christian geologists such as Ken Wolgamuth and Greg Davidson back in the early 21st century to lead seminars at churches and theological seminaries, at meetings of the Evangelical Theological Society, and even at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, I could see that ecclesiastical bodies and theological seminaries were now routinely offering science-oriented workshops for pastors. Veteran pastors in my dream, looking to stretch themselves with the encouragement of their congregations, for snapping up opportunities to participate in science-oriented workshops. Even a few new pastors opted for these offerings. I was astounded to see flyers distributed by dozens of seminaries, theological societies, and annual ecclesiastical meetings advertising their seminars in those areas of science that create challenges for biblical hermeneutics and theology. I saw literature that promoted continuing education seminars on methods used by geologists and astronomers, to determine the ages of rocks, stars, and physical events, on the nature of the fossil record in relation to evolutionary theory, on hominid research in the hermeneutics of Genesis 2 to 3, on cosmology, multiple universes, and extraterrestrial intelligence. I even saw a flyer for a workshop on the challenge of galactic evangelism. On the construction of genism or flood geology, none of them ridiculed biological evolution as a big lie. Several commended science as a worthy calling of God for their young people. In their annual sermons on Christian stewardship, every single pastor included the concept of stewardship of creation as a responsibility of both individual Christians and the corporate church. I saw one pastor who preached on Psalm 139, extolling the astounding imagination and creativity of the Creator. When he got to verse 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, he walked his congregation in very simple terms, through the basics of the process by which DNA and RNA and and enzymes and amino acids all work together to to form proteins within cells. Another preacher marveled at the wondrous work of God displayed in the crystal structure of minerals. Still another declared the glory of God in the heavens by showing the people in the pews stunning images of distant galaxies and nebulae. One pastor recounted the marvels of the human brain and talked of the amazing integration of mind and matter in humans. One fearless pastor, preaching on the image of God, talked about our knowledge of fossil hominids in relation to the story of Adam and Eve as an example of how extra-biblical knowledge may serve as a valuable tool, interpreting and understanding the Genesis account. At that point, my dream quickly vanished so that I never saw the reaction of his congregation. I woke with some sadness as I realized that most of what I have just recounted to you has all been a wildly improbable fantasy, but don't some dreams become reality? By God's grace, maybe this one or part of it will be uh, come to pass. I see some glimmers of hope. Thank you.